Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time, hosted by Rick Palmer. In this episode, I'm joined by author and historian, Dr. Shane McCorriston, to talk about his 2018 book, The Spectral Arctic, a history of dreams and ghosts in polar exploration. In the book, Shane's research ventures beyond the familiar concepts of Arctic exploration in the 19th century and reveals a wealth of strange stories and supernatural phenomena encountered by people travelling in the frozen north as they partook in missions to find the near-mythical Northwest Passage. Embodying that endeavour was the legendary Franklin Expedition, whose disappearance in 1848 prompted rescue missions across the globe as well as the use of clairvoyance to try and locate the lost ships, HMS Terror and HMS Erebus. The fate of the crews of those vessels also inspired a host of macabre tales, both amongst the native peoples of the Arctic, as well as back home in Britain, and these too play their part in understanding what Victorian society really considered the frozen north to be like. This was a fascinating conversation, suitably recorded on a cold, windy winter's night. Enjoy. Shane, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. On your website, you talk about how your interests focus on the night side of experience. And I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit more about what sort of subjects that term covers. Um, I suppose I I cover a lot of um, cultural and social history of 19th century Britain, but um, my, my interests have always kind of gone towards the uh, the dark side of what I mean by that is um, stories of death and uh, rebirth and um, strange burials and ghostly appearances and um, um, paranormal incidents and I suppose I, I, I wouldn't see myself as, as doing anything radically different than, than other historians um, it's just that uh, what, what I'm interested in is how the past hangs around the present and most historians are interested in that but I'm, I'm interested in um, how the past literally comes back to uh, to haunt people whether in um, you know in, in stories of, of ghosts or hallucinations or, or in returning in their dreams so um, so I've just kind of turned the dial a little um, a little a little to the left um, uh, but um yeah, so so you could you could call it the dark side, but I suppose ultimately what what I'm trying to do is say that this is part of 19th century and modern experience. Our our um, our interest in conceptualizing, um, denying, or or, or theorizing um, uh, other worlds in in our everyday reality. That's that's essentially what I'm trying to do. Right. Okay. And with the your book the spectral arctic i mean was looking back do you think that was always going to be something you'd write about or was there something in particular about arctic exploration in that era and the arctic itself that 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 prompted you to to write the book i i think i i actually came to the topic via fiction so i was an avid reader as a, as a teenager and i was um i was kind of obsessed with uh, classic ghost story fiction especially you know mr james and um sheridan lefanu and algernon blackwood people like that mm-hmm. and 
And I came across a story by Arthur Conan Doyle uh, called The Captain of the Pole Star. And it was such it was such an odd um, an odd story about a a uh, whaling captain who um, is on an expedition in in the, in the far north, the Davis Straits, I think. And uh, he feels that, that that the ship is being followed by by an unearth- unearthly presence, um, a female um, spectre, and uh, the crew start to get restless as they also um, report seeing this strange um, um, follower. And uh, as the, as the, as the captain descends into madness, um, he jumps off the ship onto the uh, ice and um, follows this this ghostly this ghostly presence. And uh, I thought it was it was a great story of of, of love um, and and the supernatural. But it, it was also the setting was was quite was quite interesting. This kind of um, hyper masculine um, whaling voyage this kind of exoticism and the sublime being frozen in the far north and uh and i, and I did a bit of digging around and of course arthur conan doyle had uh, had served in the arctic um he was he was on a whaling ship once as a as a as a as a kind of a, a physician or a trainee and uh and he and he wrote some wonderful wonderful accounts of his time in, in the far north and he uses the language of of magic and um and charisma and all these kind of sublime exotic keywords. So the palette was there, the template was there, and I thought, well, <laughs> how common is this motif for this theme of the Arctic being a uh, blank space, but also a space totally haunted by, you know, European ghosts or the ghosts that explorers and, and whalers are bringing with them, and uh, and and you know just took a bit of digging to find out actually you know aside from the whole literature aspect this theme does also exist in what we might call you know official official historical accounts in um you know journals and and, and diaries and uh, naval accounts and newspaper records uh, and so forth so once once i saw that there was something bigger here that there was an actual um uh, popular culture that had these um Kind of gothic imaginings of the arctic and it wasn't just the literature then you could kind of say well how how about going back now to the the classic stories of arctic exploration of all those you know all those noble martyr explorers going back to those stories with this other knowledge and this other kind of um area and, and then seeing what we can make of that classic period with this dark side in mind does it does it change our emphasis? Does it mean that you know we 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 need to bring in um, stories about women and dead people and zombies? Um, mm-hmm. And what does it do to the assumptions of the Arctic as a space for kind of male heroism? Um, so that that's that's kind of where where, where I got the bug. And uh, um, yeah, lucky for me, there was there was a variety of sources out there to support any kind of basic hypothesis I had. Mm, and with this era, the era that you cover in your book, it's that time when there's this search for the Northwest Passage with that focus on finding that route. Um, does that add something in, in terms of what you're talking about? I suppose the the setup for the reason that people are doing this incredibly dangerous thing. Yeah, yeah. So this is... This is um... This has been t- thought of as a quest or a kind of a crusade. <laughs> you know, that's the kind of language they were using at the time. And um, 
so there's always been there's always been a European um, presence uh, in the Arctic. You know, the the back in the 16th century, in the time of Elizabeth, there was a um, an adventurer called Martin Frobisher who was, you know, considered the first colonist of the Americas because um, he attempted to kind of colonize um, and Baffin Island. It, it didn't quite work out, but this happened a long time before the. The, the eastern uh, colonies colonies emerged so there's always been been an attraction to the arctic for for you know um resource purposes um or 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 to act as a kind of a counterbalance to spanish and portuguese dominance in the in the uh, mid atlantic and, and south atlantic but uh, what what you have then in the 19th century is this curious um shift where exploration becomes reframed as a kind of a progressive uh, disinterested thing that's that's a word that always pops up that it's mm. <laughs> a, a universal quest it's for science it's for progress it's for enlightenment and then you have like crowds like the royal society in london and various uh, scientific institutes in in in, in paris and st petersburg and so forth um sponsoring expeditions and uh i suppose for, for my purposes you've got you've got this kind of um setup where you're sending men into the unknown, almost like like astronauts today, and you know the in the case of the British uh, British Navy in the in the mid nineteenth century, they're fairly well kitted out for the time with some emerging technologies and and and, and support and resources, and uh, you're telling them to find a a geographical route, um, which which uh, may or may not exist or may or may not be practic- practical, and. Um, and then, so th- so then you've got this this kind of floating um, idea heading towards the Arctic, uh, which is totally odd and totally um, alien to that space. And I, I often wonder what the, what the uh, inhabitants of the um, the Canadian Arctic w- would have thought when they when they saw these ships coming. Because of course, these aren't empty spaces, and this is the this is the the, the fallacy that the people are mapping empty spaces and you know journeying, just blowing up ice and cracking through and uh, you've got a flow uh, as, as the Inuit buddy you've got these kind of um, uh, wooden <clears throat> wooden boats full of full of uh, men in poor clothing um, you know asking about a a a route that <laughs> nobody knows anything about or or cares anything about and uh, that's that's the raw material and it's the it's the perfect uh, case study to then deconstruct that to figure out like okay are we talking about are we talking about two-dimensional uh, people here who are just mm. have this kind of, you know, this kind of enlightenment um, and, and view of the, view of the world, or are we, you know, if if we think of them as as, as three-dimensional, the explorers and the men, then we have to assume that they're all having dreams at night. They're all bringing their memories and traumas with them. Um, they're they're telling us things and they're not telling us other things. And uh, once once you realize that, then you start to sense all the different voices, all the you know, sometimes Inuit voices appear in people's diaries. Sometimes they're repressed. Um, sometimes people discuss their dreams and discuss kind of strange noises they've heard when the aurora borealis is, is quite active. And you think, oh, let's let's pull at that thread a little. And and then once once you start pulling at so many different threads, you get a much more complex picture. And then once you go kind of zoom away from the Arctic for a second and go back to Britain during the Northwest Passage quest, where everyone you know in um, readers in the Times and in the Illustrated London News are following these quests. Well, that's a whole other universe of gothic tropes and motifs and panorama shows and diorama shows 
And then suddenly you've got this kind of, you know, this kind of Arctic imagination that is not just limited to the explorers themselves. You know, people at home are getting involved in it. The, the, the Bronte family, for instance, are kind of obsessed um, with 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 stories coming coming out of the Arctic, and they're then weaving their own um, imagination into the the raw material they're getting from the Arctic. So it just it just means that you're getting a much more um, a much more multidimensional uh, picture of what exploration is, um, rather than I'd say a kind of an earlier scholarly tradition of just focusing on documents that emerge from a ship. You know, the logbook, the journals, the official report, and they get back any diaries that, that that doesn't really get give you a lot of information it just give it just kind of reinforces that sense of you know mapping an empty space or failing to map an empty space but you know there's much more interesting stories if we if we just you know pull at these kind of moments of strangeness and yeah that's that's what i'd say around this time what is the concept of the arctic itself are there legends about what might be up there the people that might live there or what that place is like yeah, yeah. In the in the early modern period, there's there's quite extensive um, imaginings about the the, the far north. Um, a lot of them centre on various kind of ideas about the North Polar region as an actual physical um, uh, thing, like a like a like a pole or a kind of a vortex or a hole. Mm. So there's lots of kind of fantastic uh, maps uh, coming out of the 16th century uh, around that. But there is there is some knowledge of. Uh, Inuit people coming back from uh, Frobisher, of course, and um, you know that that whole episode in in Baffin Island in the 16th century ended in in violence and kidnapping. As um, um, Frobisher brought back uh, two Inuit to uh, to Bristol, uh, where, where they died shortly afterwards from a probably from a, a transmitted disease. Um, so there is there is some knowledge of. You know the the Inuit peoples um, that that inhabit this region, um, but there would have been um, like uh, biblical stories of the North as being the domain of Satan. There'd be you know ancient Greek legends of um, Hyperborean um, kind of um, alien territories, and and just general even going back to like just Babylonian um, ideas of the far North as being a space of otherness and marvels and strangeness, and um, some of it will, could could be to do with um, folklore, but the the Northern Lights with the Aurora Borealis, um, um, which occur um, in the far north and kind of um, on some occasions can be can be seen in in, uh, in southern hemispheres. So you know you've you've, you've got a kind of a <laughs> you've got a kind of a um, almost a global sense of the far north as being uh, uh, unknown, uh, semi magical, um, strange. Uh, where there were, were strange scenes, strange sights, and and strange people, strange people who who, you know, they're commonly described as as being, you know, like seals or like um, uh, like 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 um, animalistic people because they, you know, they, they they sail in these kayaks and they wear seal skin and they're, they're so fast on the water, um, so so it's a, there's a kind of a rich um, imagination with the far north that isn't just um, coming out of coming out of britain but they're certainly reflecting uh, some of that stuff and um and this and then you can kind of see this this uh, older traditions of the far north um, and re-emerge when the british um get uh, to relaunch their their quest for the northwest passage after the napoleonic wars 
um, and then the first expedition is um, 1818 and um, uh, led by Sir John Ross it gets up to um, to Greenland where they meet a uh, people they call the Arctic Highlanders mm-hmm. it's kind of this wonderful encounter scene almost like <laughs> on a on a distant planet where the uh, the British officers appear in their full full uniforms full naval uniforms and they hand over beads and mirrors to the Inuit and the Inuit are drawn as just looking amazed at their own image in these mirrors. So you've kind of got a, a sense of um, European explorers bringing their magic to the far north. And um, part of their magic involves um, disenchanting the far north. So, you know, one thing is to show the Inuit people, look, we have mirrors, we have beads, we have gunpowder, we have fireworks and colors and all of these tinned foods and so forth and pianos. Um, we're, we're, we are the magicians. We are the special ones. And then the other thing they do is they um, they try to expose uh, Inuit shamanism as, um, as false, as ventriloquism or as fraudulent. Um, and, um, you know, there's an element of kind of proselytizing and, and uh, Christianizing there. But um, but it's also it's also kind of I think goes back to that um, ancient idea of the, of the North as a as a as a as a magical space and British explorative culture while it taps into that uh, it also wants to kind of you know dismantle it a little and uh, they all you know a lot of these expeditions try to try to bring the shamans down a peg or two because the shamans are quite powerful. Um, quite powerful people in in in, in each tribe. Um, good good to good to be on the good side of because they're they're usually excellent geographers and they know the space. Mm. But um, but the British aren't really keen on their uh, claims to to uh, spiritual uh, spiritual um, um, strength over over animals and and spirits. Yeah. Hmm. In my head, I have what is probably a stereotypical idea of the the crew of a ship such as the the Erebus or the Terror the the officers are sort of quite rational minded and educated folk and the the crew are superstitious um is is that fair um yeah i mean one, one of the one of the things i struggled with is um is this this notion of superstition and um you know a lot a lot of them a lot of the most important commanders during this period um william parry john franklin um john richardson uh, they are evangelical christians mm. and uh, many whalers as well um william scoresby um is, is a good example of that he's a, he's a practicing uh, preacher as well and uh, they see in uh, their quest uh, divine guidance they see, um, <laughs> in some cases, they, they actually see um, uh, images in the ice and in icebergs and in mirages, and they are they are they're fiercely Christian. They are um, imbued with this kind of um, zealous uh, uh, idea that um, exploration is, you know, part of of God's plan, and of course, it's all part of the. You know, re- religious ideology of the British Empire as well. So when when they go to the far north, they're discussing uh, 
prayer because of course divine service would be very frequent on board ships they talk about um, bible classes they talk about uh, the gospels um you know it's it's a, it's it's quite a religious space and um and then on the other hand you know the kind of things i'm interested in you know you might you might call superstition about about ghosts and dreams and sort of strange experiences but um but i've often str- struggled to to see and it's i think it, it comes out of um our our own culture that that we divide those things uh, don't we 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 see the officers especially these religious guys as being uh fiercely religious and you know constantly thinking about um um god's plans ideas and uh the souls of their um their shipmates uh but on the other hand we see them as 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 rational and common sense and you know scientific and all these other things uh and and you know a lot of other people have written written about this but i i'd i'd kind of take a step back and and say well you know everybody on board ship is is thinking about um is thinking about the dead and is thinking about um a god and is thinking about um morality and is 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 thinking about ethics and um and and, and dogma and um and i don't think it makes sense to to divide um you know to divide uh, um your your engagement with with other worlds um in the arctic and what when you have commanders you know almost going into kind of spasmodic ecstatic descriptions of sunsets sunrises um strange shapes um divine interventions uh you know close run escapes and, and praising god for all this well then you're thinking well you know that's that's not so distant from your average uh, i don't know your average um, um sailor um, um having having a having a tradition or a custom around guy Fawkes day or or, or some sort of a, a superstition around the uh the sound of the wind or, or a particular bird it's i think it's all part of the same um you know um uh, um culture of of um of of religious engagement and it's just that today we have gone through i think centuries of of um of debates whereby christian christian beliefs especially have have emerged as just kind of background rationality and that's that's always seemed a little bit odd to me um that that it has that kind of characteristic hmm so when you were researching the book, were there some uh, experiences that people, sailors and crew had that really stood out for you? What are some of the most unusual things that people have experienced in their exploration? Uh, I, th- I think one of the more, for me, one of the more interesting things was, um, was their engagement with the Aurora Borealis. And um, this is, this is a great example of something that is, both a um, phenomenon that interests scientists and especially the Royal Society in the early 19th century. They're, they're interested in this, this phenomenon. They want to figure out um, why it occurs, where it occurs, and they also want to capture it in some form. And it's before photography, so usually you've got these beautiful beautiful illustrations of, of, of the aurora. Um, but on the other hand, the, the aurora borealis has a huge uh, um, cultural impact uh, among inhabitants of the far north, and that includes um, uh, the Canadian territories, 
Russian territories, uh, Lapland, uh, all around the uh, circumpolar regions. And there would be a huge amount of folklore and um, beliefs around what is happening during the during an, an auroral um, event. Uh, so when you've got uh, British officers and scientists in the Arctic, you know, they're iced in a winter here, a winter there. And usually they, 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 they build a little observatory and they have to track the, the aurora during the auroral season. And, uh, you know, this is a scientific space. This is a space where they're going to observe and they're going to record and they're going to create all this data and bring it back to, to London and they're going to try and figure out things about the aurora. But if you, if you look closely at the sources, you've got, as I say, all of these kind of uh, leaks and threads and strange moments, um, one of which is, is, is the language. So in order to describe what is happening during an auroral event, um, to describe it well, the, the, the writer will have to use such florid language and such exuberant, um, colorful language to describe what's happening that it becomes a kind of a a prose poem um, and you know god is brought into it and the divine nature and all this stuff and it, it just it just leaps off the page as this kind of really emotional um event for these um for these um you know rational scientists uh then then you've got the the whole issue of trying to capture this and many many explorers um drew beautiful um um drawings and then watercolors and um uh, prints of the aurora and um Fridjof Nansen did a wonderful one as well which is quite quite well known print of um of an auroral event with the kind of um back view of of a person standing under the shimmering curtains um so you've you then you've got that whole visual culture which is clearly um you know uh <laughs> it's clearly kind of extrovert and and bold and bright and and loud uh, and then the, the third thing I'd say is that uh, um, when the scientists were, were observing it, um, they were they knew in the back of the minds that many, many uh, native inhabitants of the far north described sounds, described hearing strange noises um, and, you know, um, Sami peoples and, and Inuit peoples would talk about uh, the noise of a, of, a, of, a, of a ball being kicked around or a skull being kicked around in the heavens because the spirits of the dead were playing playing a game during during an auroral um, event um but um but there was also some credible cases coming out of uh, um, um english speaking uh, people in in canada who who also described sounds so one of the one of the quests of the scientists was to um try and figure out does it make does it make sound and uh i i think in in in, in one of my pieces i, I talked about how uh in many cases, they can never actually disprove it, even though that was their aim, to disprove that um, the aurora makes strange noises. Because, um, of course, it's so far in the atmosphere, so far away from the earth, that they thought, well, there's no way that you can hear it right down here. So they were coming up with all of these different theories to explain what some of them were experiencing. So they talked about, you know, it's just noises in the ice or... It's an aural hallucination, like it's something to do with the what's happening to my ear in this space, and uh, I, so I collected a lot of these these stories, and together I suppose the the idea was then to show how you've got this um, you've got this aim here to just you know rationally record a atmospheric event, um, 
but when you look a little bit closer, suddenly you've got this kind of um, weird thing where you've got sublime language, you've got these beautiful drawings, which, you know, in some cases aren't that representative. Like there's clearly artistic license at work. Um, and then you've got these strange accounts where they're trying to disprove a theory because it's too um, it's too incredible to the, to the scientific scientific ear, and uh, and that's 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 the kind of issue in the nineteenth century. And I think it's only quite recently, in the past few decades, that um, uh, researchers in Finland have actually um, recorded some sounds of the aurora, um, and they've got an interesting theory to explain why, in some situations, it it can make a sound. You know, at our level, um, 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 on the earth. So it's funny that it's kind of gone full circle now. That you know, the the indigenous testimony, the testimony of all these natives saying that yeah, there is there is some weird cracking sounds or flashing sounds when an aurora appears. That it's actually, you know, there's there's some significant evidence to prove that it can actually happen. Um, so that's that's kind of one um, one example where you've got a you know a case study in what should be just just you know, rational science by explorers, but actually it kind of starts to unravel a little once you once you once you dwell with the sources for a while. Hmm. And when it comes to experiences that people have seeing things that they would describe as ghosts, are they taking the sort of the context of what ghosts are with them? Are they so are are they seeing what a person might see in Britain as as they understand a ghost to be? Or are they seeing something that that does seem sort of native to the Arctic, or or does it change over time as 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 these people interact more with the local population? Yeah, it's 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 quite rare to get a you know a kind of a straight up ghost story from coming out of an expedition. Um, you've got you've got some really interesting kind of little little uh, little um, uh, peaks in the door. Where where um one one um one commander Edward Belcher, uh, who's searching for for a missing expedition led by led by Franklin, he he sees a wolf, and he gets he gets it in his head that uh, the wolf contains the spirit of of one of the lost um, Franklin expeditioners, and then he goes off on a kind of a, a sublime tangent. So you've got lots of incidents like that where you've got just got kind of these moments of strangeness, and um, and also people thinking of loved ones back home and then you know feeling their presence here um but what, what you do have is uh, maybe a generation later a person who was on the expedition or a relation will relate uh, a story um about about kind of a strange incident and um uh, one, one or two of them are, are, are really interesting and do kind of uh, corroborate each other so there's there's one story of a, a pan the pandora expedition to uh, to greenland in 1875 and um, like like a lot of expeditions at the time, who, who encountered Inuit peoples, they they would want to collect um, memorabilia and bring them back to um, to 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 London, especially for for um, anthropological collections and for um, antiquarians and museums. And um, and you've you've got a, a couple of guys on one of those expeditions who are actually looking for for Inuit bones. And um, uh, they apparently um, dig up uh, the grave of, a, of a, an Inuit woman and um, hack, hack the bones off and put it in a kind of a, um, a small wooden box and, and bring it on board ship. And then as, as the ship um, sails out of the Arctic, 
um, strange things start to happen on board and uh, there's a strange wind which sailors do not like there's lots of superstition around wind of course and uh, there's a storm and um, they, the, the sailors figure out who it was who who, um, who dug up the, the, the bones and uh, demand that the box be be, be buried at sea uh, so to speak and once that happens the, uh, the the storm abates and the the ship can pass um, Cape Farewell and then head head south towards towards um, towards northern Britain again, um, and that that's a story that doesn't appear in 1875, um, but it does appear um, about 50 years later with some some very uh, um, uh, um, solid kind of uh, corroborating factors, and uh, so then I, I went back to the the diaries of. Um, the guy on board that ship who did have a link with the Anthropological Institute in London. And uh, sure enough, in his diary, he's discussing, um, he doesn't discuss um, digging up this body, but he does say that the, the crew are um, are against him because he, he's, he's a green legs. It's his first time on, the, uh, on, on a ship uh, in the Arctic. And uh, he's shooting birds the whole time and, um, and um, 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 skinning them and, and um, stuffing them. And uh, the sailors do not like the fact that he's shooting certain birds, and we all know the the, the story of the albatross in, in um, yeah. Coleridge. But um, this this so, so this guy is clearly has form, and uh, <laughs> and he discusses that that you know there is this there is a lot of superstitions on deck, and and, and um, they're not looking kindly at me. So it, it it does start to add up, and then you've you've got that same exact kind of um, uh, motif of the. Uh, the the um the Inuit skeleton wreaking vengeance on 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 a, on a ship you've got that appearing in fiction around the exact same time um and there's some stories that have clearly been informed by um by by these expedition accounts um so you, you've got a kind of a, a very real history of what you might call um colonial skull hunting and uh, disappropriation uh and then that starts to kind of seep into to popular culture around the same time as all this mummy fiction is coming out of Britain's engagement with Egypt. But the the, the mummy or zombie fiction that's coming out of the Arctic is was never really was never really um, explored. But it does appear in kind of pulp pulp fiction and periodicals, and it's clearly linked to to um, uh, what these guys are doing up in the far north. You know, they're just mm. bringing back so many bits and pieces and. Um, uh, so you can read lots of different things into it, but I suppose one theme would be, you know, imperial guilt equals uh, <laughs> the revenge of the mummy. It could be one interpretation. Right. Yeah. Going back to um, that guy who was shooting birds and took those bones, I'd be definitely on the side of the the crew there. It just be. It just sounds like a, <laughs> someone that was a, a quite annoying. Like, what's this guy doing? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we're yeah, never going to yeah. get home with this guy on board. <laughs> I'm surprised they didn't chuck him over the border. <laughs> no, they didn't. They didn't. No, no, no. Yeah. Oh, good. I guess. <laughs> um, and also going back to the chap you were talking about, was it Belcher that saw the wolf? Mm. Did he say if it was a normal sized wolf or was it was it oversized? Because I know that more recently, not in this context, but in other contexts, people have seen oversized wolves in supernatural encounters. I was just wondering if it was a big wolf. (laughs) 
Uh, no, no, I don't. I don't think. I don't think so. Um, but um, uh, no, not not in that case. But I'm I'm just reminded now of uh, another story of of a bear, and, and this time it was um, Elisha Kent Kane, who was an American explorer, and and he was one of the many who went in search of of Franklin, which became this kind of global global manhunt um, in the in the 1850s, and. Uh, he was, even though he was one of the most famous men on earth at the time, and they say his his funeral in in 1856 was the biggest ever before Abraham Lincoln's. Um, he wasn't a very he wasn't a very good explorer because his his two expeditions were were, were really rough and um, um, obviously looking in the totally wrong direction. Um, but um, Kane was an interesting guy because he was um, directly linked to the history of spiritualism. Um, and this came out a few years later when it emerged that he had um, scandalously married um, Margaret Fox, one of the Fox sisters um, in in New York State, who um, oh wow, who uh, famously <laughs> started spiritualism in eighteen forty eight. So so he he's he's in love with this um, this teenage girl, and uh, their love letters were published um, um, in a book called The Love Life of Doctor Kane. So it became quite this scandal. In, in the in the later eighteen fifties, eighteen sixties, and um, you know he he was interested in spiritualism and he was interested in um, in the séance room and the turning tables, but at the same time he was trying to wean Margaret off of this um, this this life and kind of into his more more affluent um, and you know quote unquote respectable life. But um, but when he went to the Arctic, he did uh, he did think of think of her a lot and wore apparently wore a picture of her strapped to his back. I've, I've often wondered how big the picture must have been, given his uh, horrific descriptions of sledging and then the the pain and the cold and the and the, the hunger. Um, I can't imagine a you know a framed painting would be would be what you need on your back in, in a case like that. But um, but uh, on on one of his expeditions, he does. Um, uh, 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 describe um, hallucin- horrific hallucinations of, of things in front of him, and um, I think one of one of the uh, uh, one of his colleagues on the expedition talks about uh, um, seeing seeing um, gigantic bear, um, if I recall right, uh, ripping ripping up pages in front of them or something as they're, as they're as they're moving through the snow. So there's a couple of strange um, hallucinations that they're having um, uh, in the Arctic um, because of exposure and hypothermia and starvation and all the, the usual things that happen when you're when you're up there um so so yeah so hallucinations would, would, would be quite common actually um especially among among these um disastrous expeditions but of course a lot of it we we just don't get because uh you know print culture coming out of the arctic is so restricted that that it, it's it's only occurring in these moments and maybe the commander who has time and space and the you know, um, um, dry ink at night to write to write up these accounts. That's that's all we're really getting um, directly. Uh, sometimes in some expeditions, we get the voice of junior officers uh, who write kind of rival accounts. Usually, usually to to um, usually to get back at the commander because they weren't advanced afterwards, and they write a kind of a salacious account giving <laughs> a, a tell-all story of what really happened. Um, that's where that's where you get some more interesting. Um, stories and that's where that story comes from about Kane one of his one of his junior officers kind of you know pops the balloon of Kane being the 
immortal hero and talks about all these less um less noble events um so so you're not you're not really getting them there uh and and so we we, we we're not we're not getting all the all the amazing stories that we, we should get be getting from from all of the the the, the jun- more junior people on these expeditions um which which is a shame hmm. and that's why you got to balance you know writing coming out of the arctic with writing that is coming out of britain some years later and then also this whole other area of writing about the arctic from people who uh, have never been there uh, nor could ever be there because of their their gender um, and and um, and place in society and that's 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 what i think has to be part of the story if we're if we're, if we're interested in what the arctic means to people it, it shouldn't exclude people who haven't been there <laughs> like yeah. they're the they're the very people who are uh carrying on this um this uh the, you know the the essence of an arctic imagination the very people who can't be there for reasons of you know um society money space uh access to to travel that's that's where you get the really interesting kind of um um arctic uh dreams and visions mm. yeah definitely your book centers around the franklin expedition which you've you've mentioned earlier in the episode does that fit into what you're writing about and this concept of the arctic because the, it failed and the ships disappeared or is this entire story from beginning to eventual discovery recently it's is it does it all sort of fit in with what you're writing about yeah yeah i, th- I think it's it's um it's 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 a central case because it's the most it's the most written about. So there's some fantastic sources um, about mm-hmm. it. And it really um, it dominated the whole um, um, admiralty activities in the 1850s until the Crimean War intervened to kind of um, put a halt to it. Um, but yeah, it it really is this kind of gigantic Victorian mystery. Uh, you know, a, a well-equipped expedition, a most optimistic um, um, of its time, and and it, it disappears and. It goes into this, you know, unmapped zone, and it inspires people all over the world—in America, France, Russia—and everybody's looking. Everybody's looking, including, of course, the, uh, the psychics who are um, emerging in, in in America in 1848. They start to get in on it as well, and um, uh, the 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 navy is mobilized. Lots of private expeditions are mobilized. And um, and it really kind of creates this boom in in Arctic um, and popular cultures. Um, but I suppose what what I'm interested in is uh, uh, why why were people interested in a disappeared expedition of of, of all these men, and um, what what kind of language and concepts do they bring to this missing person case? And I, I often think about the analogy today when there's ever a celebrated case of a missing person or a missing expedition, um, that uh, it's it's the it's the lack of information, uh, an information vacuum mm-hmm. really does um, pull in all sorts of stories, and theories, and, and hypothesis and hearsay and expert opinion, and and you you end up with with a um, like a whole kind of smorgasbord of different um different theories and that's exactly what happened with franklin you you everybody was allowed to have an opinion because official opinion was so uh, defunct and um unable to to solve the mystery and you know a couple of expedi- official expeditions are sent out and they come back with nothing 
uh, and then it becomes kind of a race to find who's the first to, to find any information on it. And uh, in the meantime, then in this information vacuum, you've got um, stories coming from Russia about strange noises being heard in um, in the Alaskan region. You've got um, kind of hoax letters being sent to the Admiralty saying, you know, Franklin has been found safe and well and whatever city in, in America. Um, you've got um, uh, one case of uh, strange uh, vibrations coming out of the Arctic that are being sensed uh, sensed in, in the southern latitudes. Uh, and then you've, you've got all of these uh, kind of people who, the kind of people who tend to write letters to the editor in local newspapers with their own very kind of, uh, well, I won't say well thought out, but very detailed um, theories as to Franklin's disappearance and how he might be rescued. And, you know, some of these letters are absolutely fantastic because they involve, many of them involve balloons and airships. One involves um, um, firing cannon with with messages in, 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 the, in the cannons. Uh, you've got um, um, people who, who who talk about like blowing up ice. Um, there's one guy in in America called uh, William Parker Snow, who's a major um, kind of eccentric around this whole Franklin era, and he's talking about um, forcing prisoners, American prisoners, to um, to march their way north to save Franklin's men. And he talks about kind of leaving depots over several years. You know, just all of these zany schemes. And um, I suppose the most interesting for my purposes were um, the schemes that involve clairvoyance or, or psychics in Britain, because, the, you know, exploring some of those um, stories, uh, especially in the north of England, um, kind of show you the sense of an Arctic imagination, but also how in this particular moment, this particular, I don't know, 10 year period when the Franklin mystery was was very live, that the normal um, boundaries that people had, I would say, between the supernatural and the natural uh, weren't quite as formidable as, as we might assume. And this is the era, you know, the 1840s, 1850s, when you've got a whole host of new teletechnologies, you've got um, um, telegraphy, and you've got all of these um, wonderful medical um, uh, discoveries coming out around ether and, and chloroform and, and other things and uh, homeopathy and these uh, so-called clairvoyants are saying that they have magnetic power so they're tapping into that older tradition of kind of mesmerism as being a um uh, an objective an objectable um science or, or a kind of a, a medical therapy and they're saying we can travel to the arctic and um the reason why we are credible um travelers is that we are illiterate and we are servants and therefore we cannot lie about the arctic because we know nothing about the arctic so a lot of um you know uh let's say credible actors from the admiralty and in john franklin's circle at home are consulting psychics and they're going to scryers and mesmerists and these these mesmerists are using um women servant girls um you know young boys and putting them into trances and sending them to the Arctic and giving them coordinates and saying, can you look for Franklin here? Can you look for Franklin here? And they're coming back with all of these, you know, wonderful um, sublime stories of kind of whales and aurora borealis and polar bears. And Franklin is safe. He's in a kind of a, a temperate Arctic, you know, he's in a kind of a, um, a special magical um, Jumanji world past, past the Northwest passage and he's fine. And he, 
he smells of brandy and all these other things. And, um, you know, we might say that's all ridiculous. That's nonsense. But, uh, but when, when you've, when you've got like, when you're reading letters of, uh, uh, hair samples of Franklin, who was a balding man, don't forget, being sent to a psychic in Bolton, um, so that she can, um, visit Franklin in a more precise manner. And she's being talked about as a technology. You know, this is, um, this is 1849, 1850. Uh, there's, there's, there's something more interesting going on here. There isn't a, a sense that, you know, these guys are all quacks actually, you know, uh, so-called rational people are interested in all means of contacting the Arctic. And one of the means that is in vogue at the time is, um, what we might call spiritual connections or what they call the spiritual telegraph. And it's not seen as something that might involve the dead um, or, or ghosts of the dead, but it's actually described as a kind of a connecting wires and, you know, tele telegraphs, that whole language. Um, and the, the reason why it, it works so well for a few years is this idea that women are uneducated, um, are, are, are too dumb to lie about this or have a deeply imaginative life or have any kind of uh, autonomous opinions on the Arctic. So when people like the, the psychic from Bolton, um, who's called Emma, when she comes back and describes, you know, the exact location where Franklin, where she thought Franklin was, um, you know, I don't think fraud is, is at the forefront of their minds. They're thinking, well, you know, did she go to the right place or is she mistaken? Um, because of her, illiteracy and because of her position in society there's there's no assumption that um she's having you on or she's you know engaging in her own fantasy life um because she cannot know anything about the arctic she just cannot know it so when she comes back with you know what we might say are common motifs about the arctic they're they're amazed and they think my god this this must be true um these psychics must in some way be in the arctic because a young servant girl in Bolton cannot know anything about the Arctic. Now, of course, they ignore the fact that the Arctic is part of popular culture and um, oral culture and print culture. But from their perspective, the Arctic is only men on boats writing expedition accounts. And mm. they're kind of ignorant of this whole other vibrant popular culture that the psychics, um, I think, are really tapping into. Mm. I mean, it sounds a lot to me like what was called remote viewing in the 20th century that the American yep. military did. It sounds, it sounds very similar to that. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, you, there's some accounts into the 1930s and 1940s of the Arctic being used in, in, in telepathic experiments because it is so far away from the noise of more populated regions that you can, the idea is that there's a more pure um, experiment to be had because if if you were to say to somebody in um in a, in a, in a scientific station in, in, in the far north in Ellesmere Island or something, you know, um, uh, I'm going to transmit a message to you at five a.m. on the thirty first of December. Uh, there's very little way that 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 could be um, sent to them in any other way by that time, you know, in, in a fraudulent manner. So there's a sense of the Arctic as being this kind of experimental space because it is so far beyond what we know and also because people literally can't get there 
That's the other idea that it is so it's both exotic, but also geographically well beyond our ability to move there unless it is through these um, psychic or, or spiritual routes. Hmm. Uh, something else uh, I, I know that you cover in your book is the, the fate of the crews of the HMS Terror and Erebus and, and how that affected the native people who lived in that area. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Because I know there, there are stories about what happened to those people and told through the context of the experiences of the native peoples who lived in the far north. Yes, yeah, so so, so the, you know some of the some of the main things we know about the mystery um, to this day still come from um, testimonies collected in the eighteen fifties, eighteen sixties, eighteen seventies, which is which is remarkable, really. And um, the first the first key in to the fate is um, is when a, when a guy called John Ray in Orkney um, uh, worked for the Hudson's Bay Company, who's surveying in 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 the far north, not not particularly looking for Franklin, but he's surveying and he encounters some people who tell him stories of well I'll tell him a horror story essentially of um a group of uh, starving uh, white people some winters back which they work out as 1850 who um had blackened faces and bleeding gums and they were starving and begging for food and uh, a group of Inuit gave them some food that they had at the time and then later in the season they pass the same group and and they're all dead and um there is a, a rather uh, lurid description of um, the contents of the kettles. Uh, leave leave no um, leave no mystery uh, around uh, the, the what Ray Ray's conclusion is that the, they've uh, they've engaged in cannibalism or I think what he calls it the the last dread um, um, alternative to, to starvation. Um, and um, this this story uh, comes back to um, uh, to Britain. Uh, with Ray and kind of haunts him for the rest of his life because he can't quite shake it off. And um, he 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 doesn't directly find evidence of um, the dead Franklin expeditioners, although that swiftly comes um, from subsequent um, expeditions. But his um, his his the stories he collected uh, stand up um, and are, and are corroborated actually by later expeditions in the eighteen fifties and. Um, but it's the story of cannibalism, and I think that's that's the start of what we might call the um, the horror genre of polar polar exploration that that crops up most notably in this this um this um novel and and the series called The Terror, um, which came out mm. a few years ago, and uh, uh, I think what what interested me at the time was this clash between Ray's Inuit testimony, and then what happens in England with Lady Franklin. Um, John Franklin's widow and Charles Dickens, and um, Dickens um, is a, is a defender of of Lady Franklin, but he's also rather obsessed with cannibalism as as a <laughs> as a topic as a theme, um, and he he gets himself into rather strange um, contortions in an article he writes in Household Words about why Brit- British sailors could never do this. They could never do this, and says it must be, it must be the lies coming from uh, from Inuit, and he goes into kind of um, uh, racist allegations against their their uh, their credibility, uh, and and even though he he goes on and on and on about um, evidence of cannibalism throughout uh, 
um, history, um, including on um, many naval expeditions. He says he's certain, you know, in his armchair in London that this did not happen in the Arctic. And that sets off a bit of a war of words between the two of them. And while, you know, 150 years of scholarship later, you know, there's a huge amount of evidence that cannibalism did occur, including um, and the, the gobbling up of brains, believe it or not. Uh, from from Dickens's perspective, he responds to this um, uh, kind of puncturing of an Arctic myth. He responds by writing a really interesting play with Wilkie Collins, his uh, his collaborator, called The Frozen Deep, and um, it's it's one of his lesser known plays. Um, it's eighteen fifty six, and it's occurring during a really um, stressful time in his life when when he's leaving his wife and he's fallen in love with um with, with another woman and he pours his heart and soul into a character in this play who is uh, defending um franklin's memory essentially and the play is set in the arctic um, and it also involves second sight and i think that's the interesting thing from 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 my perspective that and um, dickens is trying to make a point about arctic heroism and how British sailors are doing this noble work and they they might be tempted to kill and murder and eat each other but they never do because they are you know um, stiff upper lip type type guys um, yet in order to, to make that case he has to bring in the supernatural and he brings it in in, in the figure of a Scottish nurse who has these prophetic visions that the British sailors are going to um, uh, kill each other which is which is a kind of a, a synonym for for each other, and um, then it's Dickens's job to to disenchant that um, charge. So he's almost seeing John Ray as this kind of supernatural um, uh, monster in in the kind of um, Arctic realm, and it's his job to uh, theatrically um, destroy this this charge, and he does it to great effect. And people like you know Queen Victoria even attend the play. Um, and it, and it does exceptionally well, and um, and Wilkie Collins later later turns it into a, a short story, um, so that's one kind of um, uh, impact of that that story from the eighteen fifties, and and it goes on and on and on, and you know the the Inuit uh, accounts are, are are really interesting, and again I think earlier on in our our conversation I talked about the strangeness of these boats, these wooden boats arriving full of men in strange clothes looking for a a geographical route and um, that strangeness hangs around all of the Inuit accounts that are collected down the generations and they're, they're not they're not what we're looking for and we, you know we as western historians they're not they don't have that kind of um, factual dated detail but what does come across them is accounts of seeing these um, uh, wandering emaciated people who couldn't speak our language begging for food or acting strangely, or um, uh, walking strangely. That's another thing. They didn't walk like um, anybody who lived in the Arctic walked. They didn't have the right boots. They left strange footprints. Um, even their feces was strange. There's a great account of uh, one guy saying, you know, he knew Europeans were in the area because the, the, their, their, their poo was different. Um, <laughs> everything about them was different and odd and strange. <laughs> and and this other kind of descriptions of blackened faces and of course, we know they would have been suffering from scurvy and some people say lead poisoning. Um, and that's that's what I think we need to hang on to, that idea that um, 
British explorers in the Arctic is a strange thing. It's not, you know, we need to, we need to kind of figure out why we've often thought of it as, as a normal part of kind of masculine culture that continues to this day, you know, people like Ranald Fiennes and, and so forth, you know, just trying to do everything and climb everything and be everywhere and explore all these new worlds. So that, that is, that's not a, that, you know, we need to diagnose that. That's not a normal thing. Wanting to plant flags and all of these, these strange spaces. And it becomes so, you know, even far beyond the realms of normal when you turn to Antarctica and you've got that whole other whole other quest and, and martyrdom there. But from the Inuit perspective, the Franklin expedition, you know, is not a glorious failure, is not this great tragic event that it is, that it is for us, mysterious disappearance. It's just a really odd thing that happened. Um and 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 then they talk about kind of the spirits of the dead hanging around certain sites, and um, you know, the, the, unfortunately for the expedition, it kind of um, was iced in in a, in a very um, remote part, even for the Arctic, with um, with very little um, game to, to hunt, even if they could hunt, um, and you know, groups of 128 men is not is not a good way to act about going around the Arctic when there's such limited. Uh, limited and seasonal uh, uh, game to be had so from their perspective it's just the utter odd alien nature of this european presence and then we can start to kind of throw back that magic mirror and say well you know who who are the strange folk here who are the aliens who are the monsters you know it's not the natives it's not the inhabitants it's you weird ill-supplied and you know unknowing foreigners in this space you you are the you are the interlopers here not us um that's that's what comes through the the oral testimonies that i think in recent years have acted as a corrective to the longer history of kind of standard you know nar- naval narrative accounts of the franklin expedition that once you bring in all this other um, um indigenous testimony and memory and reflections then you can start to kind of question the whole assumptions of 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 polar exploration and see it as this weird you know haunted enterprise um yeah that that's what i think um that that was that was a kind of a balancing that needed to happen and thank god it's happened in the past um the past 20 years just as the ships have been you know rediscovered Mm, i was just gonna end that conversation on that because it, it is only recently that those ships were found and do you think that with well the partial solving of the mystery in a way is that I don't want to say sad, but, you know, you, you were talking earlier about the part of the whole thing is this mystery. And now that mystery has been partially solved, has it, does it mean that the Arctic's lost a bit of its enchantment you were talking about? Because I, I imagine maybe not. And I'm, I'm wondering if, is the Arctic, because of the discovery of the Franklin expedition, do you feel like it's less, it, it, the, the way it's seen is less enchanted or has it kind of sparked an interest in what these people did and what happened to them and where it happened and things like that. Yeah, I, th- I think, yeah, I, th- I think, um, I, I think from, from my perspective, it, it definitely was, um, believe it or not, a, a downer when they found the ships because I had to rewrite my conclusion um, to the book because <laughs> oh, they no. found the Erebus in 2014 and the, <laughs> the terror in 2016. Um, I had, I had been concluding the book with the, with the wonderful um, 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 epilogue that uh, 
the uh, the sites of the shipwrecks have long been national historical sites in Canada um, since the 1990s. Um, and that was before these national sites had any location whatsoever. So the, the mm. Canadian government had created this kind of spectral national park, which wasn't anywhere um, until the ships were found. And then it was, lo- okay, so then they moved this pre-existing national park to, to where the ships were, which I always thought was quite interesting. So I did have to rewrite certain sections but um has a lot of some of his magic um no because i I think this 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 will this will lead to a boom in in interest and uh, a whole new range of theories about the expedition especially if there's um half written letters or you know um um, slightly preserved messages that's that's usually what 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 gets people off i think in this in this situation um you've you've got museum exhibitions that have already happened based on some things they've taken up from the ships there will be there will be more after this there will be permanent exhibitions um and um i think i think we still we still have a um we we in 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 western scholarship still have a, a an obsession with with text with journals diaries logbooks um I, I i i'm skeptical about whether any of those have survived um if they have if it, it will be great um and if they haven't then I, I think that will continue this sense of enchantment and mystery and kind of um multiple theories about what happened because i don't i don't think you're ever going to get a statement from the last dying person Mm. on a ship about the whole history of the expedition and there's all of these um you know wonderful and exciting rumors of um a franklin mausoleum on the land because some people think franklin um wasn't buried at sea when he died in um in 1847 and uh they talk about inuit legends about uh, coming across a mausoleum and finding um finding a grave of great a great captain and papers and uh, caches and records in, in uh, copper tubes um so, so the, the the from our perspective, we're, we're constantly looking for that that document that reveals everything. Like, um, did they all abandon ship in eighteen forty eight? As the only surviving document indicates, did they break up into di- different bands of of groups? Did they actually return and reman the ships and pilot them again? Which comes out of um, the Inuit testimony collected at, at the time, and then gone over again by david woodman in the 1990s you know all of these things um are, are still are still um yeah, a little bit up in the air um i don't think we're going to get that final account and until we do um there's going to be more and more popular imagination about it like that series i mentioned the terror there's going to be more histories and um, it's always going to be there as this kind of um enduring loss uh um, until until you know something more is discovered but then you know that something more is always kind of lacking another something and so forth so yeah i think it's it's going to go on and on yeah definitely hmm. brilliant well shane this has been a fantastic conversation thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast thank you very much it's great to talk about it if people want to find out more about you and how to get a hold of your books how best do they do that uh, they they can Google me. I'm I'm uh, on the Newcastle University uh, History Department webpage. Um, I also have my own website called uh, www.shanemacarriston.net. 
Um, and uh, yeah, so uh, a lot of my details are up there. Excellent. Well, I'll make sure to put all that in the show notes. Brilliant. Thanks a million, Rick. Take care. Polar exploration in itself is obviously a dangerous pursuit, requiring incredible character in any era. But it's hard to imagine quite what it was like for those people who were part of those expeditions in the 19th century looking to find the Northwest Passage. The isolation, the dangers of the ocean, and the bitter, biting cold. Comparisons are often made with space exploration in the 20th century, which seems a fitting analogy. Interestingly, a number of astronauts came back from missions having experienced unusual phenomena, and as Shane's book indicates, this is a natural consequence of humanity venturing into unknown, unexplored territory. What on a map is a blank canvas is, in reality, all too ready to reveal its true dangerous, haunted nature. That's all for now. After the episode is finished, please consider rating and reviewing the podcast wherever you listen. Also, sharing it on social media and following the show on Twitter really help it to grow and find new listeners. You can find some of The Sphere on Twitter at spherical underscore pod and on most of the well-known podcast platforms. And you can now also donate to the podcast via Ko-fi. There is a link for that in the show notes. Some other sphere will return as usual in a couple of weeks with a new episode. Until then, be safe and well, and thank you very much for listening.